You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome to this week's edition of America's Voice for Energy. I'm Marita Noon, Executive Director of Energy Makes America Great, Inc., and the companion educational organization, the Citizens Alliance for Responsible Energy. Each week, I have the opportunity to address something from the news, a current energy issue. Well, you know, the end of September was a big big time for energy news. We had the uh, Federal Appeals Court oral arguments that were heard on September 27th in Washington, D.C., and the next day we had the OPEC agreement to reduce production, to decrease production. Well, last week I wrote about the Clean Power Plan, the oral arguments heard before the appeals court, so this week I addressed the OPEC agreement. Now, of course, when I find news that has to do with with a global uh, oil price and so forth, I immediately think of Phil Flynn and reach out to him. And I was grateful that Phil was available for me last week to kind of talk to me before I wrote the column, uh, before I wrote this week's column. And so I'm delighted to have Phil with us today as our first guest. Phil is the senior market analyst and author of the Energy Report. He is with the Price Futures Group. Phil, thanks for joining me once again on America's Voice for Energy. Thank you, Marita. It's good to be here. You know, as I said, I called you or I reached out to you. I sent you an email last week, and you were gracious enough to call me and have a chat with me before I wrote this week's column, which I've titled, OPEC agrees to a production decrease, comma, prices increase, but could be just right. And, Phil, as you and I were talking last week, you brought up to me that you really feel that this agreement uh, that, that uh, OPEC came up with, which is, of course, as we'll discuss, not signed, sealed, and delivered yet, is really an indication that um, the war between or the war with OPEC, you know, they're trying to to uh, squeeze out the American shale producers. It, is kind of, this signals kind of a waving a white flag of surrender. Can you explain that? Well, I think what it is is that I think Saudi Arabia uh, and the other OPEC members realized it was time to call off the dogs. Essentially, they feel that they've won the uh, OPEC production war. You know, if you go back a couple of years ago, um, when they couldn't get an agreement with Russia to cut back on production at the OPEC meeting, uh, the Saudis just threw their hands up in there and said, all right, get ready. We're going to pump as much oil as we can. Uh, and the pumps were open. Uh, and we saw one of the most significant price drops in the history of the energy industry. Uh, and And now... It looks like Saudi Arabia is ready to say, all right, you know, I think we've done enough enough damage to our own economy and to the shale producers, uh, and we're ready to cut production and get prices back up again. So I think in a weird way, that's the Saudis' uh, acknowledgement that they think they won the production war, and it's on to higher prices. So you view it that they won the production war rather than that they lost it, that the pain has been too great. I mean, much of what many of the um, 
analyses that I read said things like that they didn't expect that that really basically that the American shale producers would be so resilient. They didn't expect this low price environment to go on so long and that that they can't continue to withstand the economic pain in the in their own kingdom. I think there's some truth to that. I mean the Saudi is coming up with Saudi Aramco, they're going to actually offer an initial public offering on their state-owned oil company to raise money. Uh, they are retooling their their uh, economy for the future to try to look beyond oil. But make no mistake about it, I don't think that this is an admission that, that the action didn't work. I think it's actually worked. And let me give you the evidence why I think they think they've won. Number sure. one, they have got Russia to agree to cut back production or freeze production along with them. If you remember, you know, when the price war started, the reason why they wouldn't cut production and the reason why they started a production war was because Russia would not go along with, with OPEC to cut back production. They also had a concern about the shale gas producers, that they wouldn't cut back on production. But since then, uh, now Russia is agreeing to cut back production and work with uh, OPEC to cut back production. If you look at the U.S. shale producers, we've seen a lot of them go into bankruptcy. Uh, we saw yeah, a historic sadly. drop. Uh, in U.S. rig counts, okay, um, and even though rig counts have been coming back, there's still a far cry from where they were, you know, just, you know, before the, the pr production war started. So I think that the Saudis feel that they did enough damage to the shale industry where they can safely cut back production and drive up prices and not really risk losing as much market share. They know that the shale producers are there to stay, but they're not as big a threat to them as they were since the war started. Yeah, they certainly are not as big a threat today. And while American producers haven't, quote, unquote, agreed to decrease production, the reality is is production has decreased and investment has, in de has decreased. Investment in future exploration, which uh, I understand uh, limits the availability of American oil in the future. I agree, you know, and, you know, I think if you look at actively trying to find oil, uh, uh, we have some of the the lowest rate of discovery of new oil sources that we've seen in 60 years. Now, of course, I'm quoting that uh, before that big find we we found in Alaska last week. It's like, where did right. we find and, and the oil? big right. the big discovery right. in the Eagleford. In, in the Eagleford, exactly. So we've had major. How's that, how, how's that peak oil thing going for you guys? No, I'm just yeah, exactly. Uh, <laughs> um, but they keep finding these more new sources of oil. But it's not because they're really actively looking for it or spending money. It's just because we know it's th it's there. And the thing is, is that I think Saudi Arabia kind of had a feeling that with the new technologies, they'd be finding these more sources of oil, and to get the money in place to start developing those resources, prices are going to have to be a lot higher. Now, a few years ago, you know, if, if, if Saudi Arabia had cut production, uh, we probably would have continued to erode from Saudi Arabia's market share, and we would bring in these new sources of oil and effectively price Saudi Arabia out of the market because our oil was better quality. 
Uh, but now um, I think we've pushed back a few years um, the ability to go out and get our sources of oil. Uh, and because of that, the Saudis feel that they have an edge and, you know, that, it, that by the time the shell producers catch up, uh, they'll be laughing all the way to the bank because they've made so much money on higher oil prices. Yeah, and so essentially they, they've gotten what they wanted. They, they, they've incurred some pain themselves, which they are best equipped of, of all the countries that produce oil to endure that pain, um, but they've they've gotten what they wanted out of that. Yeah, I think that that's exactly correct. Now, you know, like any war, a production war is not like unlike wars. I think that uh, they probably underestimated, um, you know, you know how strong the shale producers would be. Um, I think that they thought prices would have come back last year, and they looked like they were going to, but then remember we had the Greek exit, and then we had the Chinese financial crisis, uh, and I think that it did stress uh, OPEC even more. But because of that second dip that we had in the price of oil, um, and because it took longer for Saudi Arabia to win this war, uh, it probably means it will see higher prices in the future uh, because people are going to be more skeptical to increase capital spending for new energy projects, especially after the drumming that a lot of these energy companies have taken during this production war. Yeah, and it will take a while, uh, don't you think, for the – the producers to really be back out in the field full scale. I mean, we're looking now at roughly $50 a barrel oil. It had been creeping up there and creeping up there throughout the summer, but it, we hadn't been able to break through that $50 ceiling, which we now have as a result of this OPEC decision. And so with that, we're going to see, uh, I believe, increasing rig count, but I still think it'll be a while before there's really a big rush back to the oil field because there's a lot of question about this deal and producers need to feel a little more security uh, from my perception. And I think that uncertainty plays into OPEC's hand. Um, you know, but I would go back to history. <clears throat> there was a time not too many years ago when we had a historic agreement between OPEC and non-OPEC producing countries. And I remember, say, 15 years ago, uh, the last time these uh, groups worked together, Russia, OPEC, and non-OPEC nations, when they worked together, um, one of the things that we have seen is that um, the uh, – uh, the the agreement was met with skepticism back then, and people said this uh -huh. is never going to stick together. This is going to fall apart, but they held it together enough to get prices up. And of course, we never looked back on prices. We went straight up since that agreement, um, and we still haven't really got back to the place where we were the last time they agreed to work together to re restrain production. We've got about a minute and a half left, Phil. You mentioned that prices went straight up the last time they had an agreement. Where do you see them going now? Well, Saudi Arabia, uh, the uh, Saudi oil minister says that he thinks that $60 is not out of the question for this year. And I have to say I agree with him. I think that the pieces are in place for a move for another $10. We have a plenty of time. You know, let's face it, I mean, oil prices are going up in the heart of shoulder season uh, at a time where um, 
you know, usually they go down. So once you kick into the stronger demand periods as we get closer to winter in the anticipation that maybe this winter might be colder than we than you know what we had last year, uh, you could see which is certainly what market. I'm seeing. That's what we're hearing. Yeah, I mean, I just read a report from AccuWeather this this week, and they're looking for, you know, <clears throat> some polar vortex type of weather in the Midwest. Right. You know, and and you and 30. I talked about that. You and I talked about that. I think last time we were together, and how that impacts the natural gas prices. It does, and of course, we hit the, the highest level on natural gas since January of 2015. Um, and uh, those prices look poised to go higher, and it, and it impacts oil as well. You know, a big part of the globe still heats their um, homes with the oil uh, and heating oil and derivatives thereof. And, um, you know, if we do get a cold winter, it can impact the price of oil as well, and, and we usually see prices go up in the winter. Yeah, with just a few seconds left, where do you see gasoline prices going? Well, we've gone up 12 out of the last 14 days. I think that gasoline prices have, are going to go up a little bit, maybe you know, another 12 to 25 cents a gallon, but that'll be it. I think you're going to see a disconnect between oil and gas. They can actually go down if oil continues to go up. Yeah. Great insights, Phil Flynn from the Price Futures Group. Thanks for joining us once again on America's Voice for Energy. We appreciate your insights. Thank you. And we'll be back in just a moment with our next segment on America's Voice for Energy. 45 years of experience is behind the most trusted name in auto transportation. Passport Transport, the first and finest today. That's why Passport Transport is the preferred auto transport for major auto manufacturers, concours, museums, tours, and collectors. And should be your choice from across the state to across the country. When you have the need, go to PassportTransport.com and enjoy the peace of mind referenced experience will give you. Passport Transport. Obamacare is failing. We all know that, but you need to know why and what you can do to get us back on the right track. Visit us at ObamacareWatch.org. This is Grace Marie Turner of the Galen Institute. Join us at ObamacareWatch.org. Watchdog is a term given an organization like the United States Justice Foundation, which since 1979 has been watching out and, when necessary, taking the appropriate action from testifying to litigating to protect our constitutional rights. USJF, a nonprofit organization, is nationally recognized not only as a watchdog, but many in the government, as well as those involved in legal cases, have also called the USJF a bulldog for the tenacious approach in their presentation and proof of what is right. Find out more at www.usjf.net. Support USJF as they support you. You're listening to America's Webradio.com the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to America's Voice for Energy. I'm Marita Noon, and this week we're talking about the OPEC deal reached at the end of September and how it's impacting both the oil industry, but more we're going to focus in this segment a little bit on consumers and how it's going to impact gasoline prices because, of course, you know, when the price of oil goes up, the price of gasoline goes up. When the price of oil goes down, the price of gasoline goes down as they are totally tied together. So to talk about this with us, the whole topic, I'm delighted to welcome back another regular. It's interesting. This week we've got two regular guests to the show and 
two brand new guests. But I'm glad to have back my good friend, Tim Snyder with uh, Matador Economics. Tim, thanks for joining us once again on America's Voice for Energy. It's my pleasure. It's good to be back with you, Marita. Tell us to start off with Matador Economics. What do you do? I'm an energy economist. I, I focus primarily on you know, evaluating not only the, the fundamental factors, which are the news articles and the things that, like the OPEC story that you wrote, which was a terrific piece this week. I would encourage people to uh, do what they can to get a copy of that and read it. It's a great piece, and it kind of puts things into perspective from the standpoint of what news does, you know, somebody's word of mouth does to move uh, to move a market. And then we also do some technical analysis and look at, look at the charts and see what the charts and graphs have to say about where prices may go, where they have support, where there might be some resistance and, and uh, those kinds of things. So that's what my company does, and we advise uh, folks in the oil and gas, um, gasoline uh, retailers, those kinds of folks. And if someone wanted to get you, you put out a, week, a daily uh, analysis, correct? Right, that's correct. And they can send me an email at Tim at Matador Economics, that's M-A-T-A-D-O-R-E-C-O-N-O-M-I-C-S dot com. Good. All right. Well, hope that people will take advantage of that uh, because you've got a lot of insight, and I really appreciate being able to consider you one of my advisors because certainly, Tim, as you know, and probably most of our listeners here on America's Voice for Energy know, I'm not really the expert. I'm the communicator, and I am privy to many, many, many experts uh, nationally and really across the globe, as as we're going to hear from our next guest from England, Tom Pugh. Uh, but I've, I'm, I'm really uh, blessed to have so many bright minds that will help me and advise me, uh, such as you, and Phil Flynn, our last guest. Well, you're too kind. <laughs> <laughs> So let's get right into the topic after now that we're done rubbing each other's backs here. Um, you know, we've seen this, this OPEC deal, and, of course, there's a lot of speculation as to, you know, is this really ever going to happen? Is it ever going to come to fruition? Um, but we're, we're seeing already an impact on gasoline prices, aren't we? Yeah, we are. And, and you know, the really unfortunate part about that is you're – and I hope your listeners are, are looking at this as well. Words mean things. Yesterday morning, uh, before we... And let me mention, since you're saying yesterday morning, the show airs on Thursday, but we're actually okay. recording on Tuesday. So go ahead. Well, let, let me back up then. Then on Monday morning, early, <laughs> uh, technically before the markets would have been open, that, of course, we were trading an overnight trade. Um, we saw the markets leaning down and kind of trending down after the long week, good positive week that we had. On comments from the uh, uh, from the uh, uh, energy secretary in the Russian government, who said he just wasn't sure, you know, there was going to be an agreement, wasn't sure quite sure where things were going to be, and then very quickly, about nine o'clock on Monday morning, out comes Vladimir Putin, who says, "Oh no, the Russian government's very much in favor of working with Saudi Arabia and OPEC." to, you know, control production to keep prices uh, in, in a good positive light and move things up. That turned the market up to nearly on two on uh, uh, Monday a, uh, a record high for the year. We were just a few pennies away from uh, closing at a record high yesterday. Those things, those words mean things, and they, they have very, you know, dominant effects 
specifically on gasoline and diesel. Um, yesterday we saw the, the gasoline and diesel prices go up uh, quite a bit. And, you know, I, I, well, like I said, we do some, I do some chart work, and, and I was looking at, at where, you know, really and truthfully where those prices stand, Marita, and we're trading in a time of year when demand actually peaks right around the 4th of July. We actually saw some of our lowest prices uh, around the 4th of July. It, it peaked a little bit just before September 1st, and that always happens because folks take uh, Labor Day. Uh, labor Day. Yeah, Labor Day and last vacations and those kinds of things. Then it kind of fell off right after Labor Day, but, boy, it has been on a run. And it's working, you know, back towards that dollar sixty is the uh, is the raw price. You add fifty cents to that, you're probably trading two dollars and ten cents in in uh, West Texas, uh, Dallas. It's probably around two ten, two eleven, two twelve. Um, different parts of the country, you know, that have different basis, which is the difference between the the futures price and their local price that uh, affects those prices. But yeah, there it does have an effect, and and it's funny because it's just words, no action that. All we have so far with the OPEC agreement is is agreeing in principle in a non-structured environment that doesn't have uh, any um, legal teeth to it at all. And, you know, you'll hear people talk um, as you interview folks and as you talk to the man on the street. You know, people begin to wonder, you know, do we trust OPEC? Are they going to do what they said? Do we trust the Iranians after they shot uh, you know, a, a, a missile at a, at a U.S. frigate on over the weekend. So you got to wonder, you know, is this going to really happen? That weighs heavily because the more we worry about things like that, the more of a risk premium we put in the market, okay? And so when you have a lot of risk in a marketplace, gasoline and futures, gasoline and diesel prices don't drop uh, as much as maybe you have in a crude oil price, you'll have more volatility in those things because gasoline producers can't get stuck. Um, they, you know, you buy diesel at a dollar sixty a, a gallon, and then turn back around, and the market drops when when that you know whatever that risk issue falls away, and you know they're selling it at a dollar fifty cents a gallon, and and that is very detrimental in a lot of gasoline and uh, terminaling type operations around the country are suffering because of that. Well, you bring up that risk factor, which is always there, um, and and we've got, as you brought, pointed out, the uh, aggression coming out of Iran, and then we've also got some hurricanes um, impacting oil pricing. Well, you did. You know, you had Matthew earlier in the week. Now we've got the cold that is going to hit Bermuda. It's not going to. I don't think it's going to uh, track towards the United States. But you know, we've had we've had a couple of pretty good strong waves of hurricanes this summer as the El Nino began to wane and the effects of La Nina begin to come back. Um, we're starting to see those hurricanes begin. And, and you know, Matthew just scared the thunder out of out of uh, the entire east coast of the United States. And, you know, listening to the governor of Florida, um, it, was, it was Armageddon talk. And I'm, I'm glad people, you know, they paid attention to that because it's a lot of times not so much the wind, but the but the rain and the you know the massive amounts of rain that they had in Florida moving up into the Carolinas it can be a problem. Those things all affect gasoline prices because now with those refineries shut down and with those terminaling operations shut down, are not able to get around to get their gasoline. They have to begin to pull fuel from their closest partners. So the Southeast United States may go to the Mid Atlantic 
or even over into the Gulf where we are in the Gulf Pan and pull, you know, fuel out of that production area and put a little bit of price pressure on that as well. So we're seeing gasoline prices going up right now, uh, but there's a variety of factors. There's this OPEC thing. There's the the risk factor. There's the hurricanes. Um, what what do you what do you see for consumers? I think consistently around two dollars a beer a gallon. Um, you know that's that's pretty much where we're going to be. We may drop down as we get. You know it, this is crazy. This time of year, you know October first is when you have the new reformulated blends to match the requirements from the EPA uh, for gasoline and diesel fuel. And so you've got, it's less expensive to produce the, the winter blends of gasoline. But, you know, it's really kind of interesting that demand has stayed pretty strong. We're, we're over 16 million barrels per day in uh, demand into U.S. refineries. And this, this time of year, it should have dropped off quite substantially. So, um, and didn't we didn't we see record high gasoline consumption this summer? We saw close to record high gasoline consumption. I, you know, it's funny. I, I don't know if you if, if your listeners paid as much attention, but you know, you listen to the various uh, prognosticators around the around the world. I, I hate to listen. I, I hate to pay attention to the uh, as a as a guiding force to the bank to the bank economists that come out and talk things because. You know, the day that, that uh, Russia came out and, and OPEC agreed that they were going to uh, uh, agree as an organization to limit production, um, you know, you had Goldman Sachs come out and say, we see another $7 drop, and we were trading $43 crude oil at the time. They were talking 35 or $36 in crude oil. Well, now we're $20 away from that. So there's so much. Uh, that affects these market prices right now. And the sad part about this, and the consumer gets frustrated here because they don't know how to plan their gasoline purchases because all they see is gasoline's gone from like a buck seventy nine in in West Texas to two oh nine in West Texas in, you know, thirty days. And that's a big jump in thirty days, but it's still a really comfortable range for consumers. Right. It really is. I mean, the difference is is the change. You know, the change is what shocks us, not the price. And, you know, we would have, gosh, two years ago, we would have welcomed $2 gasoline, you know, when we were trading nearly $4 a gallon in uh, in uh, just uh, regular unleaded gasoline. I remember filling up a diesel pickup truck that I had and having to go out and take care of my cows, Marita. And... Uh, <laughs> I'm paying four dollars and thirty-seven cents a gallon for for diesel fuel, and and my pickup truck held thirty-seven gallons. That wasn't cheap. No, that would wouldn't be cheap. Listen, we've only got a couple minutes left, Tim, and you know I love politics, and I know you follow politics as well. This OPEC deal that's not signed, sealed, and delivered yet, they're supposed to be meeting in November. Their meeting will be after the election. So two questions, and they've got to be quick. Do you think they set that date after the election on purpose, and do you think the election's outcome will have an impact on that November meeting? First and foremost, I don't believe they set the date on purpose. Uh, I think it was just their planned schedule. And, you know, somebody after that happened figured, oh, well, that's, that's where we stand. That's number one. Number two, I do believe this, this will have an impact. Um, I think the election will have a bigger impact on prices than will, uh, than will, 
uh, OPEC, to be perfectly honest with you. I think OPEC's going to do what they want to do. They're going to say the words that they got to have because right now they're they're filling their coffers back up with fifty, you know, fifty one dollar and some change crude oil. Um, you know that makes a big difference. But I think our political situation is a significantly different uh, undertaking. And you know, with with Hillary Clinton, the thing that's confusing to a lot of people is that. She says one thing in public and then says something totally different in private. There is, I'll talk about a risk factor. There's a big risk factor there because nobody seems to know where she stands. Is she as green as she purports to be to try to pull, you know, the millennial vote over and uh, and try to win that election? I don't really know. I certainly hope she's not because we can't have uh, an all-out assault on fossil fuels here in the United States. It will cripple our economy. Yeah. We're out of time for this segment. Tim, thanks for joining me once again. We've been talking with Tim Snyder with Matador Economics, and we'll be right back with our next segment on America's Voice for Energy. When four members of Congress all die within four months, each of their deaths appears to be from natural causes. But when mysterious messages begin to appear in the form of quotations from long-dead revolutionary heroes, one reporter sets out to prove the existence of a serial killer. His search discovers dark secrets and an assassin shielded by people who need the very services that only he can provide. The Sun Silas Rising, a novel by Doug Dahlgren, on Kindle or paperback through Amazon.com. Affordable health insurance was the promise of Obamacare, but for many, the government mandate caused more problems than it solved. This is Dr. Elena George from Medicine on Call, and I want to tell you about a truly affordable alternative allowed under Obamacare, Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare bypasses doctor and hospital panels, giving you the freedom to choose, and with a maximum of $500 out-of-pocket per person and 100% coverage up to $1 million per year per occurrence, you can rest assured knowing you and your family are protected. Coverage starts as low as $107 per month and also includes dental, vision, pharmacy, and holistic care. Liberty HealthShare puts you back in charge of your health. Visit them online at libertyoncall.org. Again, for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare, visit libertyoncall.org or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today. America's Web Radio is the most diverse and informative radio station anywhere in cyberspace. We have shows about health, business, current events, entertainment, home care, and everything in between. We appreciate your continued support of America's Web Radio. Welcome back to America's Voice for Energy. This week we've got interesting accents to keep you, keep you on your toes as a listener. In our last segment we talked with Tim Snyder, who's from West Texas with a strong Texas accent. And now we're going to be talking with Tom Pugh, who is a commodities economist with Capital Economics based in London. So Tom, thanks for joining us today on America's Voice for Energy. Hi, no worries. Good to be Thank here. you. And, you know, they're, they're, OPEC made big news uh, last month, at the end of last month, when they announced that for the first time in eight years they have a deal. Now, of course, we know that deal is not yet signed, sealed, and delivered. But what are you seeing uh, in your view of that deal from across the pond? Uh, I think it's fair to say that we are among the more sceptical 
people out there. I think a, a lot of the analyst community seems to be much more sceptical of the deal than, than perhaps the market is. Um, Interesting point. I guess, I guess there's three kind of key reasons around that. Um, first would be, you know, we've, we've heard all sorts of comments and, and, and this kind of thing, you know, not a deal, but, but similar kind of supportive statements from OPEC before and nothing has come. Um, right. It's all very well saying we agree a deal in principle, um, but the real work is, is going to be allocating those production cuts. Um, I guess the second point is that the deal so far excludes um, Iran, Libya and Nigeria who are the three countries who are likely to be expanding production by the end of the year. Um, so it's not at all clear you know, what that means for total OPEC production. Does this 33 million barrels a day um, you know, exclude those countries? If so, then you know, total OPEC production could be above 34 million by the end of the day, by the end of the year. Um, so we'd actually ha we'd actually see an increase, even though some yeah, countries I mean, might yeah. decrease. We could well see an increase. Um, I guess the alternative is that if those countries are allowed to increase, then somebody is going to be going to have to be cutting by an awful lot more. Um, I can't imagine many of the many of the other producers putting their hands up and, and volunteering to slash their output by another one to one and a half, two million barrels a day. Um, and third is even if this all does go to plan and they cut production and um, oil prices rise, you know, in six months to a year, you, we could see a significant rebound in U.S. shale production. Um, and then, you know, yeah, because it can come back on quite quickly. U.S. shale production, the, the, in many cases, the wells are drilled, the, the uh, logging's been done, and they can come back online quite quickly. Exactly. So you have this whole drilled but uncompleted wells, this ducks thing, where they could come back mm -hmm. on, online very, very quickly. Um, but even kind of drilling in, you know, from a, a brand-new well to production is only a lag of between three and six months, depending on whereabouts you are. Um, so, you know, oil prices in the, say, the high 50s, um, which could happen if, or if OPEC does do this, um, does agree a substantial cut in November, um, you know, within six months, you could see a, a significant rebound. Within a year, you could see U.S. production um, rising quite rapidly again. And then OPEC is back in exactly the same position as it was. Um, you know, do they cut again, or do they go back to this kind of market share strategy and we're, we're back where we started. They've just delayed everything by a year. Um, so I, I think they're the kind of three key reasons why we're sceptical that, that A, a deal will be done and B, it will materially make a difference to the market in any case. And I gather that on your point number three that you uh, have a fairly high um, belief that they will just, everybody will go right back to producing at will. I, th I th certainly think if you get, if WTI prices rise to the high 50s, I think shale producers will come back en masse, um, especially uh, if you know, the futures prices have risen substantially as well, then you can hedge your production for the next year or two perhaps. Um, that gives you the confidence to come back into the market 
we're already seeing even prices at, at 50 we're already seeing a flurry of hedging um, and activity drilling rig numbers mm -hmm. have been ticking up for the last few months you know even with prices in the in the high 40s so you had another ten dollars on that and I think there will be quite a significant rebound yeah, it seems like all we really needed was some upward movement and some apparent stability, which we've, you know, we've been in that high 40 range, mid to high 40 range for quite some time. And so I think uh, producers, uh, especially the U.S. shale producers, are having a sense of confidence. Yeah, definitely. There's, there's been a real, real shift in sentiment over the last week. Um, prior to the OPEC deal, it was quite bearish. Um, you know, there's still a glut of supply out there. Nobody really could see an end to it. Um, but now sentiment really has shifted, even, you know, not counting the OPEC stuff. Um, people are focusing on the decline in, in U.S. oil stocks, um, whether that's yes. seasonal or not. Um, but and that's kind of come right at the same time, so that's adding to this. Exactly. Of course, that, that, that does raise the risk um, that if the, all the OPEC, um, the OPEC meeting in November goes south and they don't end up agreeing something, all of that positive sentiment kind of um, swings back into a bearish sentiment and you could see a, a really sharp drop in, um, in oil prices. So I, I talk to many people such as yourself who still think we could be seeing $25 a barrel oil. It sounds like maybe you're one of those as well. So we think probably 25 is is probably on the low side. We have about 45 penciled in for the end of the year. Um, but if, if this, you could end up with, say, the, the worst of all worlds. So let's say you know, oil prices continue to rise into the mid to high 50s until November. Uh, which encourages a flurry of hedging from U.S. shale producers. Mm -hmm. um, OPEC doesn't actually manage a cut. Um, you know, the whole thing deteriorates, like we saw in Doha. Um, so then you have U.S. shale producers significantly ramping up production because they're hedged in the high 50s. You have OPEC um, continuing to increase production uh, basically at will because there's no agreement. Um, Th throw in um, a rate hike in December for good measure, um, <laughs> and you could you could definitely see oil back in the um, the low 40s or potentially lower. Um, now I don't think if if you know, it does get that low, it probably won't stay that low for long, just because I think uh, the market kind of recognises that oil at that price is unsustainable, and you get a lot of speculators just seeing it as a, as a buying opportunity. Um, but, but certainly you could see a dip that low. I want to read to you, if I can, a comment that someone wrote on my column, which is published in many places, but one of them is townhall.com, a popular conservative U.S. site, if you're not familiar with it. And I, I'm, I'd just like you to respond to this if you can. Um, this, this person who writes in response says, do we listen to what these people say? We have a president who pushes for energy independence. This is one of the few things I agree with him on. The methods he pushes, I disagree. We have no use to import any oil to America. Why, then, are we locked into the prices set by OPEC? 
if we truly wanted to win the wars, we could flood the market with low-priced oil and drive them out of business. We have set ourselves up to fail. It is an easier way than all the dance with sanctions and wars where we can't shoot our enemy. Open your ears and listen for a change and see how we are manipulated. What's wrong with his premise here? Um, I guess there's a couple of things. Even with U.S. shale oil booming, um, you know, when it was at its peak in, in kind of 2014, early 15, mm-hmm. the U.S. was still having to import um, you know, vast amounts of oil. Um, you know, this idea that the you've got you've kind of got two compel- conflicting um, objectives there. The U.S. could possibly be energy independent um, but not at low oil prices you would need significantly higher oil prices in order to drive you know that that kind of expensive um, production that that there is out there um, so you couldn't necessarily have it um, you can't really have it both ways uh, at low oil prices um, there's just not enough incentive to to get that hard to to get oil. Um, I guess the other thing is in, in a free market, you need um, you know, everything to be, you, know, you need to import and export. If, it, if certain U.S. refineries need to import heavy oil, which the U.S. doesn't really produce, Canada has some of that. Right. Um, you know, some of the South American countries do. Um, you know, it's far more efficient and effective to allow the U.S. to export its light oil like it, it has been doing increasingly since the restrictions around that were lifted um, mm-hmm. and import the different types of oil that it needs to create some of the, the heavier fuels. Um, you know, the idea that energy independence is a, a good goal in itself is a little bit flawed. Um, I guess the other thing is... Um, it's not just oil. You have coal, um, coal and natural gas reserves as well to take into account. Um, on that front, it is more likely that the U.S. could be um, energy independent. So I think it makes more sense to talk about energy independence for, say, North America as a whole. Um, yes. That is a far more likely um, goal. Funny, again, funny you mentioned that. I was on a radio interview this morning where I was the guest. And I brought up that very same thing because Hillary Clinton, which you may or may not follow closely, but in the debate on Sunday night, she falsely said, we now have American energy independence. And it's like, no, no, we don't. But I said on the radio this morning myself that we could have North American energy independence within a short time. Yeah, I think that's a much more um, realistic goal, if you want to call it a goal. Um, but again, you know, this probably won't happen um, with oil prices so low. Um, you know, the Canadian production is quite high cost. There's been a lot of talk about how how much um, the U.S. shale guys have managed to bring down their costs, and that has been amazing. Um, but yeah. part of that is because um, you know, rig counts have fallen so much, and production has has fallen off. When you try and ramp that production back up, um, you'll see costs start to climb as well. Yeah. 
We've got about 30 seconds left, Tom. I want to ask you one more quick question. In the beginning, you mentioned that the market is more optimistic about this OPEC deal than, um, than the analysts. You got, I've got about 15 seconds. Why is that? Um, I'm, not, I'm not entirely sure, to be honest with you. Um, it, it confuses me a little bit, but I think um, people have just been waiting for some bullish news that they, that they can jump on. There's a lot of people who, who were looking to take advantage of oil at low prices and looking to get into the market to try and make some money, and I think that OPEC move was, was just a trigger. Um, yeah. And they'll probably be looking to sell it, you know, to get out of it before the November meeting in case it, it all goes wrong. Yeah. Thanks for your insights, Tom Pugh. For, appreciate you joining us today on America's Voice for Energy. We've been talking to Tom Pugh, the e a commodities economist with Capital Economics Limited based in London. We'll be right back with our next segment on America's Voice for Energy. Obamacare is failing. We all know that, but you need to know why and what you can do to get us back on the right track. Visit us at ObamacareWatch.org. This is Grace Marie Turner of the Galen Institute. Join us at ObamacareWatch.org. Affordable health insurance was the promise of Obamacare, but for many, the government mandate caused more problems than it solved. This is Dr. Elena George from Medicine on Call, and I want to tell you about a truly affordable alternative allowed under Obamacare, Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare bypasses doctor and hospital panels, giving you the freedom to choose. And with a maximum of $500 out-of-pocket per person and 100% coverage up to $1 million per year per occurrence, you can rest assured knowing you and your family are protected. Coverage starts as low as $107 per month and also includes dental, vision, pharmacy, and holistic care. Liberty HealthShare puts you back in charge of your health. Visit them online at libertyoncall.org. Again, for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare, visit libertyoncall.org or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome to our closing segment of this week's edition of America's Voice for Energy. This week, we're talking about OPEC and their agreement, their historic agreement, to a production decrease and how that has increased prices for oil and for gasoline. In our closing segment, we're going to talk to one of the gentlemen who I met several years ago but has never been with me on America's Voice for Energy before, Alan Brooks. And Alan is someone who I quoted in my column this week, and he's also known for um, a newsletter or a blog that he puts out called Musings from the Oil Patch. Alan is the managing director for PPHB, which is an energy investment bank. Alan, it's good to have you with me today on America's Voice for Energy. Thanks for joining us. Uh, well, I'm quite pleased to do that, Marita. It's been a while. It has, uh, since, since we met at a meeting in New Orleans. Tell, for our listeners who are not familiar with your work, tell us a little bit about your background. Well, I've been around the oil patch for 40-some-odd years. Uh, started as a uh, energy uh, securities analyst and then did a stint as a uh, consultant in the industry doing macro and, uh, and micro industry and company analyses for uh, 
investment banks and uh, lawyers uh, during the 80s. Uh, the big uh, downturn for this industry. I was a Spent a lot of time with the Maritime Administration and working through all their bankruptcy cases and a lot of banks, and I was the court expert in the largest industry bankruptcy, which was Global Marine. So I had a lot of experience that way. I then spent a few years uh, helping uh, the uh, senior guys at ENSCO create uh, that company, and uh, then I went back to Wall Street, and uh, and then now I'm uh, basically having an affiliation with PPHB, which are a bunch of guys that I've known for a long time that are energy investment bankers, and uh, this is really a uh, M&A uh, firm uh, that specializes in the oil service sector of the industry, but obviously we have to keep up with everything going on in the, in the energy sector. Yeah, so speaking about keeping up with everything that's going on in the energy sector, this OPEC announcement uh, is big news. How do you view it? Well, I guess I can characterize it this way. We are probably better off today than we were a few weeks ago. But whether the being better off translates into a significant recovery in oil prices and a dramatic change in the uh, industry operating conditions, which are obviously very depressed, slowly recovering, but you know those are issues still to be resolved, and we're going to find out over the next uh, five or six weeks, I guess, whether OPEC has the resolve to get together with uh, with Russia and actually put a deal together and share some of the pain that uh, you know will need to be shared amongst the OPEC members in terms of cutting back their production, with the goal of getting a higher price. But of course, the big mystery is how high a price uh, are they targeting? What do you think? Well, the Saudi oil minister said, you know, $60 by the end of the year is not unthinkable. Now, a lot of people, I think, grabbed onto that yesterday and, and basically said, wow, you know, $60 is, is nirvana for the industry. Uh, well, we're looking for any good news, don't you think? Yeah, exactly. I mean, uh, we're starved for good news. Yes, and uh, that's the big question. You know, is $60 the target? Is it uh, something north of 50 Is it the agreement that has put in place has basically put a floor on oil prices on the downside, maybe in the high 40s? Um, there are a lot of different, uh, you know, p potential objectives, and, uh, you know, I think the one that will come out will come out as a result of the negotiations and the posturing that goes on over the next five or six weeks. And we'll begin to have a feel for where that is. Then there's a matter of implementing it. Uh, obviously, uh, you know, Saudi Arabia can cut back production as we move into the winter because their domestic demand goes down. So that gives them gives OPEC an out for at least a few months of the year. But uh, what happens when um, you know the summer comes back and their air conditioning load goes up and they want to produce more oil? Well, you know, where are they going to be? And there are a lot of yeah, other. Yeah, you kind of you kind of answered my question there. I was just yeah. going to ask you why does their oil consumption go down in the winter? But I'm assuming, and you kind of answered that that their electricity is generated from oil. And therefore, in the summer, they use a lot more of it for air conditioning. 
That is exactly right, and that's one of the internal goals of Saudi uh, with Aramco is to change that mix because they actually use raw crude oil to power uh, some of their electric generating uh, facilities. So what they'd like to do is develop their natural gas resources and then change their fueling over from oil to gas, which would give them greater supply uh, for export. So, yes, that, that is a, a big issue for, for Saudi. Interesting. Yeah, I wasn't aware of that, but it, when you say it that way, it certainly makes sense. So the the um and I interrupted you. Did you finish what you wanted to say before I jumped in there with Saudi Arabia's electricity con uh, development? Yeah, I, I I think so. At this point, you know, we could probably go on for a long time, but uh, why don't you uh, ask you more questions? <laughs> well, the point of yours from your post, and let me just mention for our listeners that you, as my as I. Uh, our, but post our work on oilpro.com, and that's where I happen to find this particular post of yours, though you also uh, send me your, your uh, musings from the oil patch, but this is where I happen to catch, catch you. And you wrote a post uh, in oilpro.com titled, Did We Just Spend Two Years in Hell for Nothing? And I want you to address that, but the specific point that I quoted of yours in your in your article is you talk about the this low priced oil environment and that as a result of it the industry has become a more efficient industry and a higher oil price environment excuse me and in a higher oil price environment a more profitable business and I'm, I'd like you to address some of those industry efficiencies if you could. Well, the major uh, improvements have come on the drilling end of wells, and then obviously we've we've had advances in uh, hydro uh, fracking uh, technology also. But to the former on drilling, uh, if you go to the Permian Basin, which is at the moment the hot spot in the U.S. for drilling, uh, mm -hmm. what we have found is that by using pad drilling and by using various other efficiencies in terms of uh, the, the uh, equipment and, and all of that, we can drill today four wells in the time it used to take, and I'm talking about maybe three or four years ago, one well. So but we're not talking huge, ancient history here. No, that's what that was why I made the point. It's three or four years yes. ago, not you know ten or twenty years ago. So we're talking about people drilling in the same formations, but because of what we've learned and how we can do it, and uh, again with different equipment and, and technological uh, improvements in, in designing wells, etc., we are able to drill many more wells with many fewer rigs. Now, that's a good thing for a producer. That's a bad thing, obviously, for a drilling contractor because he's suddenly drilling himself out of work and, and the prospect of not having more rigs going back to work because of how efficient he's become. On the completion side of the business and the fracking, uh, what we've done is we've been able to drill longer laterals. We have been able to improve the uh, completion and the frack jobs such that we are able to frack more finitely and at deeper at a longer depths because 
You have to envision this as a horizontal well. So when you frack, you're going out sideways as opposed to if you went straight down and fracked, you, you would be going differently. But the point is we are able to open up more of the reservoir, which means we can drain more production. So what you're finding today are wells that two or three years ago would produce, uh, you know, uh, Whatever they would produce today, they might produce two or three times the initial production and at least twice as much ultimate recovery from a well. So all of that plays into the economics for the producer, making the industry more efficient and breaking and bringing down their break-even cost. And that translates into... You know, with a lower break-even cost, as the price of oil goes above that and goes up, and it doesn't have to go back to $100 a barrel. If their break-even cost is 45 and we go to 60 you know, suddenly there's $15 in there, but their break-even cost a few years ago was probably 80 And Yeah. You know, so you had to go to 100 to get $20 of, of profit. So that's where the point comes about a more efficient and potentially a more profitable industry as we get to higher oil prices. And do you see that we're going to get to higher oil prices? I think it's inevitable that we will. Um, I have spent the last two years uh, focusing more on, not on the downturn, but more on the recovery and the shape of the recovery. There are a lot of people who are suddenly, you know, jumping up and down because of the OPEC agreement and saying it's $60, it's $80, we're going back to 100 we're going, and I've even seen somebody who's written, and I haven't read it yet, 147 which was the previous peak. Well, that may happen, but I don't think it's likely to happen anytime soon, and there's a reason for that, and that is, Unfortunately, the sunlight, the um, the sunsetting potential on the hydrocarbon industry, whether it happens through the economics, whether it happens through legislation and regulation and mandates uh, to move the consumer to more efficient uses of energy, we're going to slow down the growth of energy, and at some Interesting point. point. At some point, you know, it could turn negative, and most likely will turn negative. Some point, at some point, not likely. You know, how, what? We've only got about thirty seconds left. How do politics play into that? Well, uh, significantly, they, they will play into it because most of the renewable in industry in the U.S. has been generated because of mandates, and if you get the right political alignment, you will get many more mandates uh, with very high fines for violating those mandates, and that will become the uh, basically the, uh, the sledgehammer that will force the industry to have to make a lot of changes. Yeah. Well, we're out of time. I appreciate it. I had more questions I wanted to ask you, but as you and I said before we got on the air, we could probably talk for hours about energy and not run out of anything to say. So I appreciate your time. Quickly, how can someone get on your list to receive your uh, musings from the oil patch? Well, I have a uh, website, uh, Energy Musings, that they can go to and sign up there or... Uh, 
they could uh, send an email to uh, to PPHB to me at PPHB a brooks at pphb.com and we can put them on the mailing list it's it's a free publication great I appreciate your time. We've been talking with Alan Brooks, and this wraps up our show for this week of America's Voice for Energy, heard each week on AmericasWebRadio.com. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening.